No, I say, I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football, everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I would get a taxi back to Manchester. The only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking mentality <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country produced players and where we play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony, I have to be honest with you. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And fighting is there! Hello and welcome to the Three of the Back podcast. I'm joined, as always, this week by Phil Green and Enda Higgins. How are you, lads? Keep good, thanks. So today we'll be trying to wrap our heads around cryptocurrency in football and figure out why John Terry is posting cartoon monkeys all over Twitter in the past couple of weeks. We'll be joined by author Martin Kelladine a little bit later on, who's been keeping his finger on the pulse of all of this over the past few months as it becomes more and more invasive in football, you have NFTs, fan tokens, um, these cartoon monkeys. There's fan ownership is beginning to become a factor. Um, lads, I, I don't want to dismiss this this NFT business as snake oil too soon before uh, before we get Martin on, but it does smell a little bit fishy. Um, so I'm looking forward to that one with Martin. I, I don't know if you have any uh, thoughts on this whole crypto. Are, are, are you digging into the uh, exchanges every day trying to make a, a quick book? <laughs> My crypto wallet is absolutely empty at the minute. <laughs> Despite the riveting 90 seconds of video from Paris Hilton and Jimmy Fallon doing the rounds on social media today, I'm yet uh, to buy a bored ape either. Horrific. Uh, no, I, I mean, like, it, it, but what it does speak to is that it's not actually just football. There is a mania around at the minute around this. Uh, one of these kind of economic manias that uh, has kind of pervaded every part of kind of entertainment and culture. And football is just one of those things that a lot of people happen to be interested in. A lot of people are very passionate about. And unfortunately, it's probably a route for these companies to make a few quick quid off some kind of unsuspecting people. Yeah, and I think the combination of lockdown over the last kind of 18 months to two years combined with the increase in cryptocurrency has led to this increase in boredom and people searching for this next fad. I, I know at least two people who've invested heavily in crypto in the past 12 months and have traded it heavily and it's it's affected them in more negatively than positively. So you'd have to say the links to gambling are there in terms of uh, intuition and, and money and the risk. Uh, but it seems even more volatile than any bet you could ever make. So it's been interesting to see how it's managed to work its way into um, popular culture. Uh, and as Phil said, that Paris Hilton <laughs> video was quite quite a sight. Uh, 90 seconds of my life, I'll never get back again. And I'm a United supporter, so <laughs> there, there are a lot of those this season. So uh, it's, it's bizarre, really. Um, and uh, I think there was one of the boarding hoardings had Keep Calm, uh, during a Premier League match because crypto had crashed by 30% or something during the weekend. So to have that level of influence um, is staggering, really. And I don't think it's something that's going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I have quite a limited knowledge of, of, of this whole world. And I can kind of see, you know, 
some use cases in in certain instances but i mean these cartoon monkeys it's it just absolutely shambolic and i mean john terry's replies at the moment that they're well worth digging into every time he, he posts one of these um i mean it's just absolute ridicule and taking the piss out of john terry who i presume doesn't have access to his twitter account anymore i, I imagine some um crypto guy has uh, has has taken the keys and the passport and he's uh he's milking terry for for all his worth um over the past couple of weeks and terry's probably uh checking his bank account every so often just to make sure it's uh it's going up rather than down um but yeah looking forward to that one with martin uh, a little bit later on on the afcon front um it's been a couple of interesting few days i think um Obviously, we had uh, some giant killings in in the group stage, uh, Comoros and, and Cape Verde Islands, in particular, coming coming through. Algeria falling away, um, and Ghana uh, a pretty high profile. We had um, a guest on a couple of weeks back uh, from Ghana who has been uh, pretty disappointed with their fare. Um, I mean, I think the Afghan organisers have probably looked at the state of affairs and are kind of like, Do you know what, we need to clamp down on this. Um, starting with Comoros last night, they had to play an outfielder in goal. Um, Chakir Al Hadur um, played in goal. Um, only five foot eight, I think. He he looked pretty dinky. In fairness, he had to send on his tippy toes <laughs> for the uh, for the team photo before the game. Um, and then to add insult uh, or insult to injury, um, they sent off their captain after seven minutes. So uh, Cameroon had uh, had ten men um, for the guts of uh, eighty or eighty five minutes. And poor old Comoros, they held on. Um, bravely in fairness and, and it finished 2-1 um, and then earlier tonight Cape Verde Islands nine men um, our own Pico Lopez had to go off at half time I think he was feeling ill uh, he had food poisoning and I think coming into that so uh, the Afghan organisers have had enough of these uh, these minnows taking all the all the uh, the, the, the highlights from uh, from this one yeah, like it, it, it's been probably the most notable thing about the tournament so far. Like you said, has been those kind of bigger teams or more traditional powers, I suppose, starting to fall away. Um, and like, I mean, how could you not be taken in by Comoros' story? I mean, there are like le- less than a million people, uh, under nine hundred thousand people, I think, actually, just tiny little island off the coast of of, of Africa's east coast, um, in their first ever Afcon, make it through thanks to this kind of Euros style, uh third team goes through group stage um, but I, I suppose in in keeping with what football has been like over the last two years I mean they had 12 COVID cases in Comoros' case and it's why their goalkeeper uh, or why their left full was in goal was because two of the three keepers had COVID the other one was injured um, mm. but I suppose it does kind of show up a little bit the not not the folly because the tournament has gone ahead but I mean it's the last 16 game and you have a left full playing in goals um, it it does kind of show up the challenges i suppose that they've had in this tournament that it hasn't gone entirely smoothly it's been great that they've been able to get action onto the pitch and by and large has been at least entertaining results if the football hasn't always been absolutely sparkling but i suppose it was a pity for um for comrades to, to go out that way they probably knew going into it like they gave such a great account of themselves they probably knew a win was exceptionally unlikely in the situation and um, but they have continued the team of the kind of the minnows or a rising middle class. I think Jonathan Wilson was kind of saying it was kind of the struggling middle that were rising up a little bit in Africa, which is which is great to see because I suppose for so long, it wasn't a tournament stacked full of shocks. I mean, we had Zambia in, in 2012 winning kind of really against the odds, but a lot of the times it is those kind of more developed footballing nations or more 
more kind of apparent football powers that have done well in the tournament. So I suppose it is very good for football on the continent as a whole if there can be that kind of middle band that rise up a little bit towards the, 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 the bigger powers. But, I mean, having said that, you look at who's left in the tournament and Cameroon and Senegal are through. Egypt are playing tomorrow um, against the Ivory Coast. So there's another power that's going to go through. So really at the sharp end, you're still ending up with these kind of traditional names, I suppose. And maybe the minnows just giving us a bit of value for our money along the way. Yeah, it's been a very strange tournament. It started off really slow. I think there were nine one nils out of twelve games in match day one. So, and then obviously the Algeria nil nil against Sierra Leone was probably the biggest shock of all, really. Um, and it was funny we discussed a couple of weeks ago with our guest the almost the curse of trying to defend Afcon, and Algeria really looked like a team that were panicking in that first game and. And as it turned out, um, rightfully so. But it's almost ironic, really, how uh, our referee, Jenny Sikazwe, has kind of kick-started the tournament in terms of drama. And since then, it's just been a phenomenal watch. Um, unfortunately, slightly overshadowed by the you know horrific events of last night in which people lost their lives outside the stadium. And I don't think that can be overlooked. But yeah. um, in terms of the actual entertainment since sort of match day two, I think it's been... A really good tournament to watch and as we said Comoros and, and a few of the other as you would say lesser nations really have put their best foot forward I think we've also seen a lot of underperformance from uh, nations who there were very high hopes for and it, it's very strange we have this situation where you have so many successful African players in Europe now but yet there still is this struggle to find balance in their national teams in terms of how how best to translate their form and success into their national teams, probably even more so than we've seen in Europe. Um, so I think there's still a huge challenge there for AFCON teams going forward and and even the draw for uh, the next World Cup qualifiers has, has thrown up a lot of them against each other. So it'll be interesting to see how they manage that going forward. But I think it's Overall, it's been a very interesting tournament. Um, and, you know, I think Ivory Coast against Egypt tomorrow will certainly be hopefully one of the highlights. Yeah, I'm not sure if you saw um, Senegal and Cape Verde today. Um, Cape Verde obviously went down to 10 men in the first half. And then the collision with uh, between Sadio Mane and the goalkeeper, um, Vozinha, who saw red for, for that one, Um I mean, Sadio Mane, and, and you, it's kind of a nice, when you relate kind of the, the Giants versus the Minnows, is very much Sadio Mane, the superstar of Senegal. Looked cl- like he had got clean knocked out um, during the collision. Kind of reminded me of, of a, an NFL tackle when a player is kind of midair and you can kind of, you see he kind of loose, loses um, lifelessness and his arms went a little bit limp um, and he just collided to the ground. Um, and there was no effort to uh, to take him off or, or provide any sort of kind of concussion protocol, um, and then six minutes later he goes off and scores, um, and Senegal are one 0 up, and then he goes off uh, a couple of minutes later. Um, I mean, it, it absolutely was one of the instances that happens every so often where the guy that this happens to is far too big of a superstar on his respective team to be taken off, and there's kind of like you know, a scratching of the rules. We're thinking we're just going to quietly ignore this one and let him get on with it. Um, and it obviously wreaked the benefits of him kind of scoring pretty much straight away. Um, and then Senegal held on. I think they got a, a late goal to make it 2-0, but um, an absolutely frightening one. And it, it's one that could, could, could come to, uh, back to bite Liverpool in a couple of weeks' times if he is uh, feeling the after effects of, of that collision, which uh, uh, even the, the goalie who was sent off um, had to be stretched away 
he looked in an awful state um, and got a red card for his troubles. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right in terms of the, the idea that, we, you know, these star players or even just any players, it, it seems the football doesn't really have its house in order in terms of head injuries and, and what is the right protocol. I mean, certainly it shouldn't take Mane dropping to his knees and asking to come off for him to be taken off regardless of what stage of what tournament it is. Uh, somebody in as much bother as he looked like he clearly was um, at a minimum needs to be properly assessed. And if he's properly assessed, then that gets picked up quite quickly. Um, as you said about the goalkeeper, obviously very, very unfortunate for him. Uh, sent off for his troubles and has, I think, since been taken to hospital. So hopefully he's okay as well. Um, but obviously kind of set the tone a little bit then um, for Senegal, who were at the time looking for the goal. Mane eventually delivered before he disappeared. But yeah, I mean, it, it's the latest in a long line of, of problematic dis- uh, decisions around head injuries in football. I don't think it's something that they've cracked and it doesn't seem like something that they have much of an appetite to crack, even though you think it should be relatively easy given that these events don't happen overly often and other sports are def- definitely getting ahead of it um, probably out of necessity when you look at things like the NFL lawsuits and all that, but that's kind of besides the point. Um, and as you say, from from a, a Liverpool point of view, um, they'd be hopeful that nothing too serious for Mane, both in the kind of short term, but in the longer term as well, because obviously it only kind of takes one uh, one concussive incident to kind of uh, that could cause problems later on. So hopefully everything works out for Mane and for the goalkeeper, um, because yeah, no, it wasn't a great situation to see today. Yeah, I mean we we discussed this offline before the show and football's attitude towards concussions and head injuries in general is still horrific as far as I'm concerned and I brought up the head injury to Julian Weigel at the weekend in in the Benfica match and he was bleeding so heavily he needed bandages and a swimming cap and he was still sent back on because he wanted to go on and I think so many incidents with head injuries you see players demanding to be allowed back on the field and then no matter what the medics or the manager says they're allowed to go back on Um, I don't think that was necessarily the case today with Mane but um. I think football has a huge responsibility in terms of looking after players and improving their concussion protocols uh, if there's any chance to avoid these things in the future because there seems to be at least two or three incidents every season where a player doesn't actually realise what has actually happened to them. Um, And unfortunately, until those protocols are in place uh, and they need to be driven by by the leagues in general, um, we're still going to see these instances. And, and it's a shame because we don't know the long-term effects. Um, and we see a lot of older players now struggling with dementia and things like that. Um, and it would be a real shame if football didn't sort that out. Absolutely. On the Premier League front, lads, um, not too much happening this weekend. I think we can uh, we can put uh, the VAR incidents to, to one side for this week. Um, at the Liverpool game, um, uh, and I'm sure you'll have uh, no problem with that, Phil, as well. Onside, um, as far as I'm concerned. You know. <laughs> <laughs> what about the Snapchat filter, Endo? What about the Snapchat filter? Yeah, no, it was onside. <laughs> I mean, the lines never lie, so I don't see the issue. Yeah. Um, we look to affairs uh, further down the league, and Watford have sacked another manager, um, Claudio Ranieri. I think he only lasted. 114 days this time around. Um, as usual, when a Watford manager gets sacked, um, Twitter is uh, is often good for the stats. I think 
Um, what a good one I read since the puzzles came on board and they sacked Sean Dyche. Um, they've appointed 15 different managers while Dyche has uh, has been at Burnley for 10 years. Um, is what a go on good one? Um, I don't think they've they've kept a clean sheet since um, the pandemic was announced. Is another one, um, and I think losing to Norwich City three 0 at the weekend was absolutely the straw that broke the camel's back, um, which is a very weak back um, for from Watford's point of view. But it is getting interesting down there now. Roy Hodgson has been uh, has been announced as the new manager at Watford, Newcastle. Um, their January transfer window probably not going as planned as much as they would have liked. Um, Kieran Trippier, obviously, coming in there and Chris Wood, um, I think they probably would have preferred maybe a centre-half by now um, and maybe some big names that are um, choosing to join Aston Villa instead of Newcastle. But uh, our own Norwich, as soon as Adam Ida gets a run in the team, they've, they're out of the top or the bottom three now, which uh, is great to see. Yeah, like I, we we kind of touched on this last week when we were talking um, to to Charlie about COVID um, postponements. So like I, I was very heartened to notice Norwich creep up the table as they were picking up uh, two wins from, from the, their most recent two games. But then you notice they played four more games than Burnley, who are bottom of the table. Two more than Watford, and okay, only have only one more than than Newcastle. They've also played two more than Everton, who are above them, and. Um, and uh, what I think uh, one or two more than Leeds as well. So they've actually played a good lot of games. So not that their position is false because their points are on the table and other teams have to go and get them. But they are kind of clubhouse <laughs> relegation or uh, out of the relegation uh, positions on in the clubhouse as opposed to on actual mm. kind of head-to-head merit, which is a little bit worrying just in that, like, okay, it's a tough task ahead of Burnley, but they're four points away from Norwich and they've got four games in hand so if they get four draws they're after overhauling Norwich now it mightn't be enough to get Burnley out of the bottom three but it's going to put Norwich back behind wherever Burnley are so we've got a real false picture here of what the what the relegation zone looks like I mean Norwich are trending in the right direction and if they play like they've been playing in the last two games they're going to at least give themselves a bit of a better chance obviously their very very bad start puts them a little bit behind the eight ball but I think it'll be a couple of weeks, maybe even into months, before we have a proper idea of how things are going to shake out. I mean, Brentford, who are 14th, have played 23 games. Burnley, who are last, have played 18. Burnley have five games in hand on the team in 14th. It, like, it's bananas. It's, it's so hard to tell how things are actually going to shake out for a little while. So while you can only judge people on form, and you, if you look at the kind of form lines of the teams kind of 14th down, there's not a whole lot of green in terms of wins in the last five games. Norwich have two in the last five, which are their two most recent, and Leeds have two in the last five as well, um, having lost at the weekend. Other than that, the form is pretty bad down there. So you'd hope if you can start to put a run together, you might pull yourself to safety. But it's so hard to get a handle when there's all these games in hand. You don't know when they're going to be they're going to be crowbarred into into schedules either. They might come at bad times for teams. They might come at good times. So I'm absolutely all in on Adam Ida and League Club's Andra Amabama Daily trademark staying in the <laughs> Premier League. But um, I'm a bit worried just about the, the amount of games in hand down there and how messy it might get. Yeah, the interesting thing about Burnley was uh, you'd wonder if they'd postpone enough games to actually replace Chris Wood before they'd have to play again. And now they've announced Orsic from Dynamo Zagreb this evening as their replacement striker. So it'll be interesting to see if that has an impact. But... They only have two draws in their last five, so 
a four-point gap to Norwich, even though they have four games in hand. I mean, they would need one win, two draws, and a defeat in four games to overhaul Norwich. And judging by their form in the last five games, that isn't going to happen. So I think there's a huge task ahead of Burnley. Um, while games in hand are great, you can't take them to the bank. Yeah, So I think Norwich, almost out of nowhere, really, because it feels like we've accepted their fate all season. I mean, even last week, we were just talking about how many goals Adam Eda could score in the championship next season. Um, and he might be in a much better place than we expected. Uh, and Newcastle, you know, one win in their last five, two draws. And you would expect one of their possible deals, possibly Jesse Lingard. I know Diego Carlos of Sevilla, they've announced, or it's been reported this evening that he's decided to stay at Sevilla. So that's a big loss for them. But uh, you'd imagine that they'll find some transfer business over the next week or so, mm. considering the the new owners. So I think there's a lot to play for down there. Uh, what Watford can do, I'm not really sure. I, I don't know what Hodgson, what changes he can make uh, from Ranieri. Uh, ironically, I think the two wins in their last 14 were battering Everton and United. So it's, it's very Claudio in that regard, but they just can't seem to find any consistency at all. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't write Norwich's hopes off just yet, and um, and I think those below them have a lot of work to do. Well, I don't know what Watford and Norwich are up to during this uh, international or this kind of club break. It's not an international break, but um, Newcastle have just touched down in in Saudi Arabia, um, home of um, the uh, the new owners. Uh, so I imagine everything is above board as usual. I'm not sure if you saw their. Uh, their official statement uh, in regards to that, um, uh, they're going to be playing a behind the closed doors game against the Saudi league leaders, um, Al Ittihad, before they come back. Um, and then they proceeded to uh, list all of the teams that have also flown over to the Middle East uh, in recent times <laughs> for training camps, just to make themselves feel a little bit better. So uh, um, a number of European clubs have taken advantage of the Middle East's warmer climes for training camps in recent years. While Spanish sides FC Barcelona, Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, and Atletico Bilbao have all visited Saudi Arabia this month as part of the Super Cup competition, so uh, Newcastle trying to make themselves feel a little bit better by saying, "You know what? It's not. It's not just us. They're coming here too." I actually hadn't seen that. That is absolutely amazing. That is such good work. I mean, can you imagine how happy the fellow who thought of that in the comms department was? Do you know what we'll do? We'll list. All the other, but we don't, we don't just listen. We'll make it seem really organic and just mention how nice it is here mm. and say, oh, I'd say he thought he'd knocked it out of the fucking park of that. That's fantastic. <laughs> like, nobody will notice that we're actually definitely run by this crowd if we rock up here and but mention that Barcelona were here last week play, playing Athletic Bilbao. That was perfect. That's grand. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's brilliant. I'm just surprised they didn't throw in Bayern Munich's recent visit as well. So, potentially a missed opportunity there, but... Needy, to say the least, yeah. <laughs> um, on the transfer front then, lads, um, I suppose we've been keeping an eye on some of the, the Irish interest over the past couple of weeks. Um, one interesting one today was uh, St. Pat's defender James Abankwa, um is off to Syria, which is a, a pretty good deal for him. He's uh, joining Udinese, um, who have a decent record of uh, of developing centre-halves in particular over the past couple of years. Um by all accounts, St. Pat's are getting um, our League of Ireland record upfront payment um, in ex- excess of €500,000. And that's kind of been a, a debate over the past couple of weeks is the compensation that League of Ireland teams are receiving. Seems a little bit uh, on the cheaper side, um, particularly 
some of the players that have been going over to uh, Scotland um, and down the tiers of England. Um, but a nice upfront fee here for St. Pat's and a banquet um, from the few bits I've seen him um, and especially in the run-up to the to the FAI Cup final, he does look the business in fairness. He's still only um, 19, I think. Um, so, I mean, pretty good deal there for, for him to go over and test the waters in in Syria. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, for, for, for the kid himself, it's fantastic. It's um, like that grabs your attention regardless of which club in Syria that that a kid is going straight from the League of Ireland in, into a setup like that is great um and then for Pats I mean they're they're making some pretty savvy moves I mm-hmm. think over the last couple of years they're they really have their house in order um on and off the pitch now they're, they're doing they're doing some great stuff obviously they're on a little bit of a rebuild this year uh with Stephen O'Donnell having left um but this that sort of funding will be pretty significant for them and uh, making being as you as you mentioned, Kev, being able to make hay while the sun is shining like that when they have these players under contract, because I think that's been the issue for a lot of the League of Ireland players is these contracts just about lapsing and not getting any compensation, especially for the kind of under twenty three guys within those squads. So uh, I suppose the 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 kind of financial reality of the League of Ireland is that there's only going to be so long you can hold on to these players, and you know you're kind of seeing that a little bit with Bose as well, and the, they're kind of younger, more sought after talent either moving on, nearly moving on. Um, but Pat's getting this sort of money up front is really significant for them and will give them a really good platform to build off what was a really encouraging season. Yeah, I, I suppose you, you'd have to say it slightly exposes the League of Ireland in terms of our financial limitations, considering you know up until this point, half a million um, was the record that Man City shelled out for Bazunu in 2018. And at the time, he was a goalkeeper who'd played in Europe, who was extremely highly rated. Um, so in that regard, it's you'd wonder if League of Ireland clubs can somehow manage to take advantage going forward in terms of generating revenue from the talent that they're producing who are going to move abroad, especially with these Brexit regulations. And I, I don't think it's any coincidence that we're seeing more Ireland players get opportunities both in the UK and abroad. Um, mm. in the last couple of years but uh, no it's fantastic and even though he's very limited experience I think he has 13 senior matches across last season um, he has really looked the part and anything that shines a positive light on the League of Ireland going forward I, th- I think is is only a good thing and whether he's loaned out or plays in the Italian Youth League we'll have to see but um, really looking forward to following his progress because he's looked really impressive this season Absolutely yeah Um Ross Tierney made his debut for, for Motherwell during the week. Um, there's rumours linking Dawson Devoy over to MK Dons, which would be a, a fantastic move for him. Um, MK Dons have a, have a small contingent of, uh, of Irish guys at the moment, um, including Tri Parrot, unknown from Spurs. Um, I think a, a move into League One would be a, a pretty good one for him. Uh, another guy on the move, on the move is uh, a permanent move is Leo Connor to Tranmere um, from Celtic. He's Spent the last two seasons on loan um, at Tranmere. Obviously, a, a Manchester United youth product, and uh, mm. um, it feels like he's been around forever. But yeah. he's still only twenty-one. Um, I mean, obviously, he, he got that um, single senior cap for Ireland uh, in that friendly against New Zealand a couple of years back. Um, but obviously, you know, he he's done pretty well at Tranmere, and he's got his permanent move. Um, but either way, he does still have time on his side to to kind of move up the ranks and break into the Irish team eventually, you'd imagine. Yeah, a lot of time. And um, when he did permanently move to Celtic, I was absolutely gutted because at that time he was 
extremely highly rated in the United setup. He was already an underage captain for Ireland. I suppose the only thing that made me understand the move at the time was he was extremely versatile and I think he struggled to find an identity in, in those under 18 matches in particular. He was played at centre back, he was played at right back and then he was played in midfield whereas in the Ireland setup he was always you know, predominantly a midfielder um, and for somebody who's you know just under five foot eight, probably centre back or uh, full back probably didn't suit his physicality. Um, but when he did move to Celtic, I was very concerned that he might just be one of those players who disappears into the Celtic vault, as many young players do. We see somebody as talented as Daniel Arzani moving from Australia, for example. He got a bad injury at Celtic, and now he's having to pretty much um, advertise himself around Europe to get minutes. And I was just a little worried that the move came a bit too soon for Leo Connor, considering at the time he was a big part of uh, the United Youth setup and when the Partick Thistle loan kind of failed, really, I think he only had four appearances with them. I was very concerned for his career trajectory, but moving to Tranmere and obviously a football mad city like that, he's played, I think, 48 matches in the last year and a half in the league, which has been phenomenal amount of game time for him. And he's really nailed down this position now as a genuine number six in a, in a 4-4-2. And that's something that a lot of teams are lacking at the moment. Um, he's a fantastic tackler. He's got a fantastic fitness. Uh, he plays 90 minutes almost most weeks now. And ironically, beside Liverpool legend Jay Spearing at 33, um, who actually <laughs> has a very prominent role in that Tranmere uh, lineup, he's kind of the more aggressor in that midfield partnership. And it seems to have suited him really, really well. And, and the Tranmere fans have been delighted with his progress and his ability to win back the ball and just retain possession for Tranmere has been his, his best qualities. And I think Going forward for Ireland in particular, it can't be a bad thing. He's been in the setup for an extremely long time, a very prominent member of the Ireland setup. Uh, and as I said, he had that cap against New Zealand where he actually assisted Callum Robinson, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So he's somebody that Stephen Kenny will be extremely familiar with. And you might say, right, Tranmere in League Two, but if if they get promoted this season, they're in second at the moment, um, then I can see him easily progressing to championship level or above in the next three to four years. And that can only be a good thing for Ireland. So I think he'll be a huge part of our setup. I, I don't want to compare him to somebody like obviously Declan Rice, but he is that type of centre back who's now transformed himself into a midfielder because of the qualities that he has. And it's been really exciting to see his progress in the last 18 months. And I think there's, there's only good things to come for him. Uh, and I'd be really surprised if it wasn't a, a very important part of the Ireland setup in the next two to three years, if he keeps obviously progressing in the right way. Delighted to be joined by Martin Kelladine, author of Fit and Proper People, The Lies and Fall of Ona FC and Ugly Game to take a look at the crypto and NFT mania taking over football in recent months. Thanks for coming on, Martin. Hope you're well. I'm really well. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. So, Martin, I think... I think up until now, the whole crypto NFT sphere has been quite niche. I think it wasn't particularly invasive to our, to most people's daily lives, but in recent weeks and months, it's becoming more and more visible in a, in a football sense, at least. You have the, the fan token phenomenon. Um, the ownership of clubs through crypto is becoming a bit of a thing. There's been uh, some stories of certain clubs being a, being a target of, uh, of crypto bros, uh, as they're known. Um which we'll get into shortly, but more recently you've had the likes of John Terry of all people um, bringing it to the fore with a, much to his ridicule on Twitter with a, with those cartoon monkeys that he's been posting. 
Martin, are you able to give us a little bit of background on this marriage between crypto and football and why it's sweeping through the sport so fast? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, if you think about the last 12 months, it's been an astonishing time. You know, this time last year, I think most people will have heard of cryptocurrency. But if you'd have asked them, the only thing they could have said is Bitcoin. And, you know, some people have bought some of that, but really not more than that. And a few people might have heard of the blockchain. Um, almost no one would have heard of NFTs um, or fan tokens. And now 12 months on, I think it's 17 of 20 Premier League clubs have a cryptocurrency partner or sponsor. Six Premier League clubs have uh, fan tokens, which are digital, digital assets based on cryptocurrencies. Um, and then, as you say, you've got um, a whole range of clubs and players flogging NFTs. Um, and then other people trying to use NFTs to buy clubs and otherwise exploit fans. Um, and all of it's kind of come about in part because you know it's just part of the mainstream culture generally. I mean, crypto has is just kind of exploded the last twelve months. Um, it's absolutely everywhere. It's not just football, as you see. You know, celebrities of all kinds endorsing it. You see countries around the world considering using Bitcoin as a currency. Um, and then at the same time, of course, post COVID, there's just been a massive financial hole in in the accounts of of many football clubs. Um, and at the same time gambling has started to get some attention and so clubs are starting to withdraw from that so they're looking desperately for new sources of revenue and um there's just almost unlimited amounts of money washing around in cryptocurrency and um many of the people running those businesses if not actually criminals um are dubious people looking to make their businesses look um a, a lot more like a respectable organization and so they found this perfect you know this kind of perfect marriage of people who are very, very wealthy and people who are desperate for money um, and who aren't going to look too hard at where that money has come from or, or what it is that it's, it's selling. So that's really got us to this crazy situation faster than any kind of uh, football authority or, or government has been able to react. I mean, like you said, there are a lot of people probably wouldn't have been uh, aware of NFTs and fan tokens um, this time last year. And I think cryptocurrency itself i have a limited kind of grasp of it i mean i can understand the bitcoin side of things um ethereum to a certain extent um when people start mentioning all these other types of coins it all starts to go over my head but in terms of fan tokens like this is kind of the first thing that seemed to take off um in a football sense where these fan tokens um i think socios is the, is the name of the uh the company that kind of build and release them um and initially i thought this was say like walking into a club shop and buying a magnet or some sort of piece of merchandise um, for uh, uh, for the club that you support. But it's tradable. It, it The price fluctuates. Um, it doesn't necessarily um, equate to how well a team is doing. So a team could be doing poorly and their token could be expensive and vice versa. Um, I mean, it, you're essentially buying something that doesn't exist. But like, why why would a fan, you know, kind of get real into this type of stuff well i mean in one sense the easy answer is they wouldn't and they aren't but that's uh, only a partial answer so you know if, as you say that it's a company called socios who are by far away the market leaders in this there are other people that provide them but socios have as i said six premier league clubs they've got clubs like barcelona paris saint-germain both Milan clubs, I think, um, and then they've signed partnerships with dozens of other sports teams all around the world. They were just way ahead of everybody else. And what they are, if I just give you a quick kind of background to the fan tokens, is that they are 
digital assets. So not actually shares in the football club. They are a, a thing that's, that the clubs partner with Socios to sell and they will produce uh, millions of them per club. If a smaller club, they might have, say, 500,000 or a million. Larger clubs like PSG might have 20 million of these things, which are sold initially at two pounds or two euros each um, in tranches of like 10 or 20 percent of the total. Um, you buy these things and they market them as if it was buying like an initial share offering, like when a company goes public. Um, and the idea is once you own one of these things, you will be able to vote on company business as well as take part in other kind of loyalty schemes and stuff. And at that kind of high level pitch, that sounds kind of interesting, right? You know, if someone says, you know, you can have a bit of a say over your club, um, that sounds good. Um, and, you know, right now, I think you know, people have been maybe the last 10 or 20 years feeling ever more disconnected from the big commercial nature of these operations from the fact that, you know, almost no clubs are owned by someone who has any kind of historical ties to them or the area. And so just a, you're kind of like a smidgen of, of, of an opportunity there to say, well, my voice can be heard. But you look at the detail and that's where this thing gets problematic because they, socios, they're, they're, they're um, strapline is be more than a fan but actually if you look at the, the detail of it every single element of how they've designed the product is misleading and does not do what it says so at the high level you know these actual polls themselves are are, are laughable almost completely meaningless the, the, the most consequential one i've seen was where you were able to vote on uh, the goal music to be played at juventus after they've scored which of course sounds kind of all right except that the vast majority of people who own these tokens aren't Juventus fans um, and if you imagine what it would be like if you let's say you were Man City and Manchester United fans were deciding on your business you'd probably think that was a strange way to run a fan engagement scheme but generally these polls are, are, are much lower level so there was one fairly recently I think it was for AC Milan where you could vote on which player you wanted to see the inside of their wash bag like literally you know like what, what toothpaste on aftershave <laughs> they have i mean it's it, it's 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 very hard to underestimate how feeble and embarrassing some of these things are and as a consequence they have extremely low turnout sometimes fewer than 20 percent, sometimes fewer than 10 percent the people who own these tokens in clubs as big as man city or, or psg will actually vote in the polls so evidently they don't act as a significant form of engagement and the question is why not well as i kind of hinted earlier um anyone can buy these tokens so if you think you're going to set if you were to design a proper fan engagement scheme assuming that for whatever reason you decided you weren't just going to email existing season ticket holders um, or use the app that many clubs already have um, you think well one of the things you want to do to lock in this kind of thing is is to avoid a kind of a boaty boat face situation as we'd say only somehow registered members of of the, of the fan club can buy a token um, and you wouldn't be able to hold tokens in more than one club and you probably say you can only have one token per person to kind of you know, create some kind of fundamental democracy with a kind of a one member, one vote situation. But that's not what they do. In fact, anyone can buy as many tokens as they like in as many clubs as they like, and they can buy them and sell them as often as they like. And the price of those tokens is not fixed as you would expect it to be. If it, you know, There's no reason why it shouldn't just stay at £2 forever because you know, you're just buying a right to buy and sell. There's no reason why that should be a profitable activity. But by allowing the price to rise and fall on this market and the app that they provide has a marketplace feature in it that shows you uh, trends and prices and all of the, the tokens. And by allowing you to buy and sell as many as you want, then you create an instant market for these objects. And you know, in, in a sense, it wouldn't matter what they were. If there is an opportunity to trade something and make a profit on it, then you know whether it's 
orange juice or pictures of, of cartoon monkeys, people can do that. And what's in it for Socios? Well, to buy and sell them, you have to buy and sell Socios's own cryptocurrency, which is called Chili's. So it's broadly like Bitcoin, although um, much less famous and much less widely used. And so if you imagine that Panini said, rather than just buying our stickers, first buy our stickers, you must buy our Panini pounds. And this is a, a currency we've invented ourselves. It, um, it cannot be used in any shop. It only exists digitally and its only real purpose will be to buy and sell these. And you think, well, why is that? And the answer, of course, is that they've minted um, 8.8 billion of these tokens, these currency units, um, which are worth you know, almost literally zero when they create them. But by creating a market where you trade for these tokens and forcing you to use the currency to buy and sell the tokens, then that allows them to inflate the value of those and to make themselves very rich. I mean, it's money conjured almost completely out of thin air. And on the other side of it, what's in it for the clubs? Well, then there's what socios do, their pitch is really straightforward and absolutely brilliant, is they go to the clubs and they say, we've got the app, we've got the kind of the brand, we've got relationships with lots of other clubs. All you need to do is lend us your club brand. And when we sell the first tranche of the tokens, we will split the proceeds 50-50 with you. So, you know, if we sell 2 million tokens at £2 each, half of that money comes to you. It's a one-way bet for the clubs. It requires no investment and it is all straight profit. And so what you have is a situation where you've got a complex trading game based on a digital currency where clubs are recommending it to the fans and the fans, some of them will buy these, but they rapidly find that actually the majority of the tokens are held by people who are buying those tokens for the opportunity to profit. Um, and I should probably pause there as a kind of a bit of an introduction, but I can talk to you about how that has led to clear examples of traders scalping fans in a way that should be completely unacceptable to clubs. Martin, I suppose that leads us into the murky world of how unregulated crypto is at the moment. And we've seen in the past few decades when it comes to banking or the energy market, once you have an unregulated market like this, it can lead to a free-for-all and people being taken advantage of, as we're already seeing with football fans being exploited. Uh, there's been reports in the UK this week that they might may try and crack down on uh, crypto and NFT sponsorship. How easy or difficult would that be for governments to get involved in order to stop this obvious exploitation that's profiting the traders? Well, it, I think in one of these situations, it's a question of will. So, you know, as you say, these things are completely unregulated. And when, it's important, I think, to take a minute to think about what that means. So that doesn't just mean at some kind of high level that there isn't an oversight body. It means that if they accidentally transfer your tokens to someone else or they run off with the money, um, as happens quite often in some um, cryptocurrency schemes, or you find out that it's run by bankrupts or literally criminals, that there is nothing you can do at all. Um, you can't get that money back. If this company collapses, there's no scheme as you would have with, um, say, a bank, which you, know, you can you can get your deposits back. Um, they're not kind of tested for, for quality. Then the people who run them are not assessed. You know, it's literally the only product that football clubs are endorsing um, where there is no form of consumer protection whatsoever. Now, in, in the UK, there is the Financial Conduct Authority, who are the people that govern um financial institutions and the people that run them. They would love to be able to um, regulate these organisations, but they can't until Parliament acts. 
So at the moment, you have only the Advertising Standards Authority who can crack down on misleading advertising, as they have done with the way Arsenal were advertising um, Socios fan tokens. Um, it's a question of what governments will do. Now, if you look abroad, there are some governments, usually quite um, uh, less democratic governments, who are concerned about how people use cryptocurrency. And we see threats in China, in India, in Turkey. Um, to actually ban cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency trading altogether. And I think, I genuinely believe at some point we will see it regulated almost out of existence. Um, but no government, I think right now in, in the kind of the developed world will be willing to do that just yet because as always, they want to make themselves seem like a, uh, a place that's open for business. Um, I think what will have to happen is that there will have to be a, a major scandal, a massive crash of the kind that's, that's perfectly conceivable with some of these um, some of these tokens or instruments. Once that happens, um, then we may see some form of regulation. But as they edge towards it, I think I have a sense that they don't. No one wants to jump first for fear of losing some kind of uh, kind of competitive advantage. Um, actually, in terms of kind of how you would regulate it, I think it, in the, the interim step would be to, to regulate them like properly banks that you'd have to check on how they're organized, how they're capitalized, um, who's running them. Um, I suspect that we, before we'll get there, there'll be some much bigger scandal that will produce much more widespread reform, but we shall see. Martin, you mentioned earlier the, um, that some fans have been burnt quite badly by, by fan tokens and their interactions with them. We've unfortunately seen a few examples in recent years of football fans wanting to either show their fandom or their expertise in football getting burnt by the likes of Football Insight or by Football Index and things like it. What are, what are the dangers for fans here in interacting with fan tokens? How can they be burned in the way that you, that you alluded to earlier? Well, it's, it's a really interesting thing about um, about football index because I, I know anecdotally that when that when that went sorry when that went down, a number of people began immediately to move into fan tokens because they recognised the possibility of some kind of trading and some kind of profit. Now, I think with, with football index because it was clearly a a gambling a disguised gambling site which had the potential to make absolutely unreal profits. That was hugely dangerous in the way that. Um, that the worst gambling sites are in terms of the, the loss financially and the damage to people's mental health and well-being. The difference, I think, with with uh, with crypto, so with Socios and their fan tokens, is that people aren't always aware that they're taking part in a gambling or a trading scheme. You know, you hear stuff about, you know, if you, if you look around at a poker table and you, you don't know who the kind of the sucker is, you're the sucker. Well, what's happened in, on a number of occasions is we've seen trading patterns that can only really be explained by um, abuse of the system. So, for example, when Atletico won the title last year in Spain, um, I monitored that because I just started buying some fan tokens so I could see how the scheme worked. And initially, um, when I was buying them you know, around about this time last year, they were about 15 to 20 of these currency units was the price. And as it became clear through April and May that Atletico were in with a shot of the title, the price started to creep up and creep up. With a week to go before the, de the deciding game, they had they'd gone up to about 100 um, currency units. On the day itself, they went as high as 190 units. And I, and I watched them minute by minute as they went absolutely surging upwards. And you think to yourself, well, maybe that's a reflection of the, the excitement of the Atletico fans have in the fact they're about to clinch a title. But in fact, the, the peak of the price was about 70 minutes in the game before the actual the title was was signed off on. And then a massive sell off followed, which within 24 hours brought the price back down to broadly where it had been more than a month before. 
So if this is a reflection of fan engagement, of fan sentiment, it's very hard to understand how that can be reflected in, in, in a price movement like that. And the same thing happened with Messi. When he was released by Barcelona, um, it became immediately clear to everyone that PSG was his likely landing point and PSG tokens started to rocket up. Same kind of thing. On the day he made the signing, they absolutely zoomed up. And then an hour before he signed, sell-off started and all of those gains were gone. So likely many of those people buying at the top of the market were genuine fans of those clubs. The people who bought early and pushed the price up and then sold off, those were just traders. And it, it's a classic pump and dump scam. The, there's, a, there's an excellent journalist in the UK, Joey Derso, who writes for The Athletic, and he spent time in Telegram and Discord channels looking at Socios users. And there was clear examples of people talking up which token they were going to push so they could then trade them. And you've seen examples uh, time and time again, um, massive price spikes in a few hours on certain tokens, completely unrelated or inexplicable by re reference to football factors. Um, and then you've seen situations like Man City, where their tokens are one of the few ones that are traded outside of, can be traded outside of the Socios app. So you don't have to buy the cryptocurrency units to buy them. You can buy them directly on other cryptocurrency exchanges. Now, Man City, as I'm sure your audience will be aware, have been on an incredible tear. I think it's 12 or 13 league games, one in a row. You know, they're doing well in Europe and the Cups. Um, and that, that run started in late November. If you look at the, the price of Man City tokens since late November, though, during a period that, you know, that almost any club would regard as one of the most successful in their history, the tokens are down more than 50%. Price has absolutely crashed, whilst at the same time, uh, the club is doing superbly well. And that's because the other side of this is that because it's linked to cryptocurrency generally, not because because you could do all of this just in normal fiat currency. You know, there's no reason that you need cryptocurrency to buy and sell and even trade these tokens. You could do that in pounds or euros. But because it's linked to the underlying cryptocurrency, that means that it's exceptionally vulnerable. And the way that cryptocurrency broadly works is that Bitcoin is the big beast and everything kind of moves around after that. If you look at the price of chilies, it tracks the price of Bitcoin very, very closely. So what clubs are in effect asking people to do is get to grips with cryptocurrency to buy tokens that they may not fully understand in a market dominated by traders, not other fans, to also then um, buy cryptocurrency units and to be able to predict overall what sentiment is, is likely to be in these currency markets and about what speculators are thinking before they decide whether now's a good time to buy. Imagine if you were selling you know, shirts in the club shop and one day the shirts are 15 quid and one day they're 100 pounds. Um, and you can't tell why that's going to be. A lot of people are going to buy shirts at prices that they later think are exceptionally disadvantageous. And who are they going to point to? They're going to point to the club and say, well, what the hell did you sign up for? Why did no one explain this to me? You know, none of this is necessary. The only people are profiting from this are clubs to a small degree and the cryptocurrency people to a massive degree. Um, and if, if, you, if anyone really had understood this um, in the clubs, I'm not sure they would have signed up for it, but evidently they didn't. Um, and many of them still don't, I think. Martin, I mean, there's one thing in terms of pulling the wool over fans' eyes um, and taking advantage of them. There's clearly an element of people involved in cryptocurrency kind of licking their lips at where football clubs are at at the moment in, in the current financial climate, um, obviously following the pandemic, a lot of um, revenues have kind of plateaued. Um, there was the case last year um, 
um, or earlier this year um, in regards to Manchester City having to end the partnership uh, with a cryptocurrency uh, which didn't seem to exist. Uh, there was no there, there was no proof of, of the firm's executives online. There was no real um, proof at all that you know this company existed in any way that Manchester Manchester City should have uh, been able to announce a partnership, and they eventually reneged on that. Um, I mean, it does seem like you know it's kind of shooting fish in a barrel to a certain extent with some of these cryptocurrencies um, knocking on the doors of clubs, knowing well that they're not going to put a whole pile of research into the background, the complexities of cryptocurrency, um, that they're only, you know, worried about the dollar signs at the end of the day and they're able to kind of take advantage of not just the fans, but uh, the clubs as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so you know, the, the company you referenced there, Three Key, was Man City's uh, crypto partner for Southeast Asia uh, and Germany. And, you know, myself and a few others read the re- the review, uh, sorry, the press release, looked at their website, which promised 150% annual returns. Now, anyone with any financial savvy will immediately see that as a red flag. And literally 10 minutes Googling told me that these people didn't exist, that none of the named executives um, had any online presence. The company didn't have a, 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 a company number. It didn't have a a, um, a telephone number. It didn't have a postal address. And when I spoke to Man City about it, they didn't really very know very much about it. And they ended up passing me a letter from this company, um, which then kind of restated what it had previously said. But I followed up with them and I said, well, look, prove to me that you exist. You know, it's, it's the strangest email I've ever had to write. You know, explain to me who you are. Send me, you know, like a link to your LinkedIn um send me a link to the, the, the kind of the company's house in the country that you're in anything at all that would substantiate that you exist and nothing and two days later man city cancelled the partnership now we all of us i suspect think that, that, that football clubs are kind of pretty desperate for cash um and maybe we'll kind of get into bed with some people with with some dubious morals but i don't know that any of us really suspected that clubs would do zero due diligence you know, like Man City have still failed to explain how it came to be that they had signed up with these people who apparently they didn't have their telephone number. They didn't even know the name of the person running this supposed company, which we can only assume isn't a real company and doesn't exist. Um, you know, if you worked in if you if you worked in an estate agents and you tried to let a room to someone on that basis, you would lose your job. You know, these are basic kind of um, money laundering regulations that so many businesses have to go through. In the UK, if you, you start a job, you have to bring your passport in on the first day so that like the Home Office can check who you are. Man City did nothing, and they're one of the biggest and supposedly best run football organisations in the whole world. And and if they're doing this. Yeah, we we don't know if they accepted any actual money. We assume some has done, which you know again raises questions about money laundering. But if they're doing this now, what does that say about smaller clubs who are signing up for some of these things? Who may not have resources, who may be even more desperate for money than Man City apparently were. You know, it's it's and that goes beyond just simply um, cryptocurrency. You know, we know that there's a lot of a lot of gambling firms who have you know very sketchy presences in the world, and so we can I think you know we can't be certain that anyone at any level of football is paying any attention to where the money is coming from or whether they're asking their fans to to do business with companies that may genuinely be fronts for criminal organisations. Uh, and I think that's a, a really staggering realisation and, and ought to make everyone a little bit more wary about um, about whether they pick up with a, a sponsor's name that they've seen, especially if it's a business they don't understand all too well. 
Martin, so far we've talked a lot about fan tokens and, and crypto companies as as club sponsors, but another thing that is becoming increasingly more of, of a factor with football's interaction with, with, with uh, cryptocurrencies is the idea of using crypto and NFTs as, as financial backing for takeovers of clubs, or at least the, the consideration for it. Uh, Wagme United are probably the most famously derided group who, who were linked with this. And um, there was a big piece <laughs> in, before Christmas in the Washington Post with them where they spoke basically kind of a mixture of, you know, Moneyball, Ted Lasso and Elon Musk's Twitter account would seem to be like where the vocabulary we came from. They talked about uh, leveraging NFTs and cryptocurrency to buy teams and starting out with blank slates and it being kind of a, a no-loss situation for them. Uh, and it was rightly and widely derided. It's since turned out that potentially uh, their, their interest wasn't as serious as it might have turned out. Maybe they, they emailed Bradford and asked, could they buy them? That seemed to be it. How realistic a prospect do you think it is that we see in the next 18 months or two years, a group actually try to acquire a team in the English pyramid or in the European pyramid using primarily crypto as kind of the basis of, of their financing? Well, I'm aware of, uh, of a number of operations who are attempting to put together um, that kind of bid to purchase clubs, um, some with ambitions to do so at a Premier League level. Um, so I think we will see more things like WAGME and they will be, I think, better organised and will get as far as soliciting funds from people. Um, the, the prospect of them actually buying a football club at a significant level. So, for example, WAGME have not completely gone away, although you'd have thought the shame of it all would, would do for them. No, they've, they, they maintain they will come back and that they are perhaps targeting a club at a smaller level. But um, it, it, we will see further attempts. I don't have any serious belief that this will succeed at any level. Um, the problem with Wagme is that I think that they were people that were notionally very wealthy in the NFT space, but there's wealthy and there's football wealthy. And the, the difficulty thing I think is that they had notionally wealthy guys asking the general public to pitch in to buy an, except, an item that is usually purchased by billionaires. Um, and that seems to be problematic. I think you may see better results from... Uh, kind of a grassroots kind of level with people who are not obviously that wealthy. But the amounts of money you need to buy, you know, if you if you wanted to buy a Premier League club, you were starting in the hundreds of millions of pounds. And and even at some of the absurd prices we're seeing for cartoon monkeys now, that's an enormous amount. And I think behind all of this, well, is it's all of the ones that I've looked at, they're evidently not really serious people. I mean, would they like to own a football club? Yeah, absolutely. And who wouldn't? Um, but do they really understand football? Do they know what it means to run and operate one? Do they have any real um, kind of expertise that would allow them to do this? Do they have the kind of finances to, to fill holes in, in club revenues when they get relegated or to panic buy a striker in January and the club is it's in danger? No, I don't think they do. And, and I think what we really see, you know, the, the cryptos, it's, it's such a kind of a, a, a changeable thing. It's like water flowing downhill and occupying different spaces. You know, in, in some parts of it, it's it's simply a a different parts of, of crypto, simply pyramid schemes, attempts to steal directly from people. Others are are attempts to um, to kind of play on um, people's fears or, or people's desires for uh, for unearned wealth to try and enrich themselves. And and I think what we see with with this kind of club purchase stuff is what we've seen so many times before in different guises using different forms of technology is an attempt really in essence to get people to buy football clubs for you. 
um, you know, it, it, it's it's kind of weird. We're at a, a moment in a culture where people will, might pay hundreds or even thousands of pounds for a stupid little picture that they could download for free, but yet would not probably be prepared to to give two hundred pounds, three hundred pounds to a straightforward crowdfunder to buy into their local league football club. And in that kind of strange time where people's perceptions of the value of things is radically distorted, there is an opportunity, I think, for people to try it on. And maybe some people will will accumulate a couple of millions of pounds, but it's not going to happen. We're not going to see people purchase um, Premier League clubs on the back of this simply because there isn't that much money in NFTs. What there is, is a lot of people wash trading, so pushing stuff around between different accounts pushing up the value of it, a small number of people owning a lot of these objects. Um, it's only going to happen if you have exceptionally wealthy people buying clubs and then defraying part of that cost, I think, by selling a few NFTs around it. It's not something that troubles me unduly, I have to say, because I don't think they're very serious, except that they will probably end up costing some some fans who didn't know better a small amount of money. Merton, I'm always hesitant to kind of rule out something as a, as, as a, a pyramid scheme without kind of uh, knowing it thoroughly or, and the ins and outs of it. But when I look at NFTs and this kind of cartoon monkey craze, I just have to call it out as a pyramid scheme. I mean, it looks absolutely ridiculous. Um, and it's kind of come to the fore in the past couple of weeks um, with John Terry, who joined Twitter a couple of months ago, to much fanfare. Um, he got in, He got stuck in quite early. Um, with some of the the banter over and back with uh, with people tweeting at him, and then all of a sudden, it's like someone completely different took over his account, which I I assume is um, is a degree of what happened. Um, but he's flogging these cartoon monkeys, um, kind of depicted as him. He posted one recently of um, of William, um, his former teammate at Chelsea. I think Tammy Abraham has popped up as a as a cartoon monkey tonight. Um, I went onto the website, it's Ape Kids Monkeys. Um, and if my conversion calculations are right, these things are going for over $2,000 um, for a cartoon monkey. And I mean, it's it just, I don't know if it just hasn't clicked with me, but I just find it absolutely um, mental that anyone would 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 want one. Like I, I just don't understand it. I, and I don't know why John Terry has been involved in this and, and why... Any, I don't know, Chelsea fan or football fan would want to would want to dip their toes into this type of stuff. Well, you know, um, knowing John Terry, I'm sure we could, we're all surprised to see him involved in a in a shady grasping enterprise, <laughs> um, primarily designed to acquire lots of money at the at the uh, at the at the expense of others. Yes, it's 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 a terrible shock. I mean, I think your bafflement is. Is absolutely the, the right approach. So, you know, just in terms of and apologies for your your audience who are already quite familiar with this. Just in terms of what an NFT is, um, the way they're pitching it is like a, a digital collectible, a, a kind of a digital equivalent of like a, a trading card or a football sticker. But you know, if we take a step back and, and think about the amazing things of the of the internet, we know that one of the incredible things is that you can copy perfectly objects digitally and distribute them at zero cost which is why you don't need to buy cds anymore why you can stream things um it costs no money to just to make additional copies of these things and and so when what people are talking about really is imagining not that you own an extremely rare like baseball card or whatever which is you know all the others have kind of rotted away or been discolored or mishandled or whatever so you've got one special one in in a little glass box in your room that you know you only let people look at and you only take it out once a year and you, with, with um, 
hold it with white gloves and stuff. The equivalent of an NFT is that you've paid an enormous amount for this supposedly unique object and that you can't control who can come into your house to look at it. Anyone can come in and at the moment they look at it, the machine spits out an indistinguishable, perfect copy, which they can take away free and it will do so as many times as they like. It, so the underlying thing itself is as crazy as that. It has zero utility of any kind. As we know, I mean, these things are generally ugly, poorly realized kind of ripoffs of the kind of gorillas look that, um, what's his name, that the punk artist was doing? I forget his name, um, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And so what are people actually buying? Well, you know, it, it's pretty clear. There's a nod and a wink there, isn't it? What you're buying is the possibility of unearned wealth. You're buying them knowing that these objects often go up hugely valuably and that you might be able to sell them and make money. Um, and if, you know, we've seen famous examples of that in, in in the art market and stuff. But most of those, when you look into them, they're examples of of collusion or effectively kind of nefarious schemes. They're not what they seem. And there's no evidence that these NFTs hold any lasting value um, for any period of time. And so we're in this situation, a really shabby, awful one, where where you know for the, we're, this is the John Terry is that first generation of of, of English footballers who were retired and retired really wealthy. You know, they've um, they're not the, the ones that retire with knackered knees at 35 and, and, and buy a pub or, or, you know, end up like flogging some awful life insurance or, on Channel 5. These are already exceptionally wealthy people made wealthy by you know, the fans that go and watch them, by the fans that watch them all around the world and pay their TV subs. And, you know, these people who, who've got, you know, tens of millions in the bank are coming to you and saying, look at what I'm into. You could be into this, too. But they're not telling you how much money they've spent how long they're holding these things for um if they're being paid to endorse them um and they're not telling you like what percentage of their wealth they've put into it because obviously it's a tiny fraction of their wealth but you know there's a lot of people in the in the uk and, and beyond if you spend five ten thousand pounds on something that, that's your life savings gone and there is zero guarantee at all that they will have any residual value all, all that you're doing when you're buying one of those is you're having your name inscribed to the database database of mugs that said i paid to have my name put here and when you sell it you're selling it the same because you have no control over that nft you can't prevent other people looking at it and um, you can't prevent other people copying from it in a way that makes it important you know the concept of of uniqueness there is, is utterly meaningless and so it, it's it's a strange shell game you know, like it's 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 like past the parcel, and at some point, or past the parcel, is it the musical chairs? At some point, the music stops, and and some people are going to be left looking at enormous losses. And there's really there's really not anything else to be said about that. That you know, what you see is now increasingly them offering things around them. So you know, like tickets to a certain number of Premier League or, or, or Scottish games a year, or entries to some other things, or exclusive access to so and so. As they go on, they're having to recognise that these things have no actual value by putting valuable things around them, things that actually you should be able to access without the NFTs. Um, so yeah, the whole thing is is shabby and bizarre, and the absolute worst end of of, of kind of like the, the cryptocurrency incursion. And it really saddens me to see you know better men than John Terry not looking at this properly and getting involved, signing up mm. because you know, it's easy money again for the players. But you know, people are going to have to account for how they allowed their fans to be taken in by this. And I think it's not going to be very pretty. Yeah, and I just looked over my screen here with the uh, African Cup of Nations on and there was uh, some sort of cryptocurrency uh, website advertised on the hoardings. And I think there was a, a similar example. Um, I'm not sure if it was the Premier League, but somewhere 
um, in England at the weekend, uh, which popped up on, on the hoarings. Um, so I, I imagine we are living in a, in a huge kind of crypto bubble at the moment that will eventually burst, um, whether it's through some sort of, um, you know, controversy um, or, or a kind of a, a clampdown on regulation, similarly to what we're seeing with, uh, with gambling in the past couple of years, where um, you know, it kind of got out of the bag for so much. Uh, it's it's taken a while to to put back in. Um, it does feel that you know this kind of stuff can only go so far, and that will eventually uh, kind of fade away. As especially as uh, as maybe people's boredom throughout the pandemic kind of alleviates now that things are beginning to open back up again. Well, Joe, I I would like to believe that's the case, but I think the other aspect of this, which is is really interesting, you mentioned the African Cup of Nations, which has touched upon it, is that. Um, this is a a global phenomenon, and um, you know it goes well beyond football. But you know, anecdotally, there's evidence that um, in poorer parts of the world, developing nations, people are switching to investing in cryptocurrency money that they might usually have put, say, into the lottery. Some very very poor people doing this, and in the case of socios, you know, for for a significant period of time, by far their biggest market was Turkey where people were buying the tokens or the cryptocurrency as a way of trying to hedge their bets against the collapsing value of the Turkish lira and the damage to that economy. Similar in Brazil, which has had economic struggles. And in cases like that, Socios and and other football-related cryptocurrency schemes have targeted, in my view, those countries, signed up players and clubs from those places, knowing that you have like a, a football mania connected with a difficult economic situation. And then beyond that, more broadly, as I say, not not just outside football, but people are putting money into cryptocurrency all around the world. And and when a, a crash comes, it, it could be on a scale of of similarly genuinely to what we saw in in the in the um the recession of two thousand and eight, kind of the, the great crash there. Because and it's going to affect and possibly destabilize countries all around the world. And and you know, for English football fans, you know, they might lose twenty or thirty quid on their tokens. Um, but you could have situations where the people in the world less least able to afford it lose their entire life savings as these schemes come tumbling down or or in just general frauds. I mean, some of your audience may be familiar with OneCoin, a massive fraud of a couple of years ago, which is estimated to, I think, to have taken four billion euros from people around Europe and has been reborn and is now doing business in Africa. There's something incredibly cynical about the way some of these are promoted. In the UK, we see um, what's something called Afrostar, which is a cryptocurrency that pitches itself as the united digital currency of Africa. But it is uh, run by and out of the UK by an almost entirely white staff of people from who have, from what I can tell, no connection with um, Africa or with poverty alleviation. You see this all the time, like really, really cynical attempts to find different demographics of people who may be receptive to the idea of kind of making some money in difficult economic time. And that's where I think that the real danger from some of these cryptocurrencies comes bigger, far bigger than the danger to football and its reputation. And that is what really troubles me about this whole business. Well, Martin, I think I have a feeling we've only scratched the surface here uh, with our conversation today. Uh, a very interesting one. So uh, thanks a million for coming on. We'll, we'll definitely have you on again if, uh, if there are any more developments in, uh, in the crypto world and it's, uh, it's a kind of murky arrangement with football. Oh, that, thanks for inviting me. I'd be delighted to come back anytime. I really appreciate the invite. So we leave it there, so okey doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs>